Yes, uh, I'm hit, I hit record twice, just to make sure. This is There's Always Another, Another Podcast, a show where we discuss the AMC series Halt and Catch Fire. On each episode, we will discuss one season. Since this is our first episode of the miniseries, we, of course, are discussing season one. My name is Jerome Cusan. I'm one of the co-hosts. You can find me on Twitter at JeromeC1985. Yes, you can still find me there. I have not been kicked off for being a Nazi. Uh, I have seen all four seasons of the show one time through. Uh, we are part of the Real World Podcasting Network, a network that includes currently Pantheon Plus. Uh, you can also go into the archives and listen to There Will Be Movies, Volumes 1 and 2, uh, Flooping the Pig. Uh, and also in the archives, we have Real Bad, Mars Investigated, and From Broadcast Depth. Uh, please leave a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platforms, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, so as to help people discover the great work that we are doing here. Uh, my co-host is Kevin Ford. He has only seen one season of Halt and Catch Fire at this point. You can find him on Twitter, at KateFord13. And if you spoil any future seasons on that platform, then not only will he block you, but I will too. So, Kevin, we uh, we are switching roles. So you got to lord your knowledge of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Now it is my turn. So, Kevin, how excited were you to get into season one? Because I know that, you know, season one, there are a lot of critiques out there that season one is kind of eh. And then season two is when it really gets good. And then seasons three and four, maybe two of the best uh, seasons of television of the decade. So, Kevin, uh, how did you feel going in, and how do you kind of feel coming out? I felt good going in because I didn't know much about the show aside from seeing some commercials for it around when the first season was airing, because they would, of course, air when I was watching your Breaking Bads or Better Call Saul's and maybe even Walking Dead. I don't know if I was still watching it at the time when when this show would have started. But I knew very little about it, but just seeing the commercials intrigued me. But just... I don't know, for whatever reason, I didn't watch it at the time, but it was something where I was like, oh, OK, maybe I'll, I'll get to this later because it definitely seemed like an interesting concept. And sometimes it just takes that thing to move it to the top of your to do list. Uh, and this was it. When you proposed to me, I said, OK, great. Here we go. A show that I wanted to watch, but had kind of forgotten about. Uh, and now here we are watching it again. So I was definitely interested in watching it and watching it through. It was certainly breath of fresh air from Breaking Bad. And Better Call Saul. And you know how much I love those shows, but this is just a less dense show, a bit easier to watch in some cases. Some of the plot elements I felt were a little spotty at first, where I, where I some of the dots weren't connecting exactly as well as they should. And I felt like it was a little bit cookie cutter. Like, okay, I feel like I all these characters are pretty much the same. I feel like I've seen this plot before. But coming out of it and seeing how those characters evolved over the course of the show very slowly and then seeing where they were at the end of season one makes me think, OK, now I see where we're going to go with this. And it makes me more interested in seeing the next seasons. And you even kind of gave me the warning of, hey, season one can be a little bit rough in some in some spots. But, if you know, once you get through this, you kind of get to the good stuff. I almost feel like it's the Buffy warning where, hey, if you can make it through season one has some of the worst episodes in the series. Like once you get past that, you're going to be fine. Let, let me be clear. The the worst parts of Halt and Catch Fire are not nearly as bad as some of those bad stuff in, in the first season of Buffy. But I was just worried that maybe this wasn't going to be this, this 
a great another great AMC show like maybe I'd expected it to be um, because I do have a history a little bit of, of being hit or miss with some of their original series. Uh, but by the end, I felt much more optimistic about it. I'm really looking forward to moving ahead in this project. So one of the things that I really wanted to do is to just have a brief discussion of the history of AMC, because it is a fascinating one when you really just look at the totality of this 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 cable network. Kevin, what is it? What do you do? You have memories of AMC like before the the prestige television shows that were airing on that network? I don't really remember the shows, but in my mind, it was kind of like in the same group as like your Turner classic movies, where it was just no original programming and repeats of older shows or older movies. And it was just, you know, another cable station to get some eyes on for people who were looking for uh, a comfort food selection, if you will. Do you remember what AMC even stood for? Like, because it is an acronym. What is it or what was it? Because it is it is no longer this thing anymore. Is it, is it just like the American Movie Channel? American Movie Classics is what it used okay. to be called. And this used to be a commercial-free movie station, like in the vein of a TCM. But back in the day, they would play, of course, a lot of older classical movies. They transitioned into airing more like I would consider, let's say, popular entertainment. Things like your, like, especially around October... Their big thing is airing a lot of Halloween movies, and they obviously air a lot of Christmas movies now. But basically, they wanted to get into the television business, and at this point, there was not there were not 500 shows, so there was probably some good television out there. And the, one of the very first shows that they ever aired, Kevin Ford, was Mad Men, and then shortly after, Breaking Bad started. So if you think about it, AMC basically started with both Mad Men and Breaking Bad, two of the best shows of the decade. And I think you that channel kind of had to do that to get its prestige right away. Because if they if they came in with two duds, forget about it. We don't have any other the we don't have a Walking Dead. We don't have a Halt and Catch Fire or any or uh you know Rubicon or any of these other shows that were on AMC. So it's it's great that AMC was able to get two bangers of shows right away to kind of open the door. And, and it's so funny how that kind of happens in television. It feels like, like if you, if you create one great show, whether that be a director, a writer or something like that you can kind of coast off that prestige for a really long time. And it's going to open a lot of doors for you. And so fortunately for AMC, it kind of kickstarted their channel and it kind of helped to kickstart the careers of the, of the people behind those two shows. And as you see, with with uh, Halt and Catch Fire, a lot of those people stick around in the AMC family and you see the same executive producers or editors or whatever going around from show to show. And uh, I think that that speaks highly of the channel. And I, I just it's so interesting to imagine a world where Mad Men and Breaking Bad aren't the first two shows that AMC puts out there as their original programming. And then after that, they get The Walking Dead, which which regardless of what you think of The Walking Dead is legitimately one of the most popular television shows of this century. In fact, it beats out a lot of broadcast shows for years. It's amazing to me that that, that that's the situation uh, that AMC is in. They have kind of become this Walking Dead network and everything else. I think that they've had some real trouble just finding other shows that are, that are sticky and, I think part of it is is everybody is going to streaming at this point. Who knows what linear cable is going to look like 10 years from now and what AMC is going to look like. But 
Uh, they have certainly had their struggles, and Halt and Catch Fire is one of those struggles because it very much felt like, oh, it's Mad Men in the 1980s. And the fact that a lot of the advertising was seemingly uh, positioned around Lee Pace as Joe McMillan, I think lends a lot of credence to that. And when you talk about the cookie-cutter nature of the show, I think the, the two things that stick out in my mind are basically, to me, Joe McMillan feels like a version of Don Draper, and in a lot of ways, Gordon Clark feels like a version of Walter White. A hundred percent. I mean, Gordon Clark's start is basically the exact same as Walter White's. Uh, Joe has the same sort of external swagger and businessman and charm that a Don Draper does, but also that internal strife of all the things that made him the man he was. And it feels inauthentic and that authenticity comes later. So, yeah, when I saw Gordon in these first episodes, as the person who's kind of given up on life, he's kind of going through the motions. There's that. There's the drunkenness, uh, the the home stuff not coming together exactly, and then something sparks to get him back on the right track, uh, professionally. Anyways, I was like, oh, I'm I really do feel like I'm watching season one Walter White all over again. So one of the things that the executive producers and eventual showrunners, this is. Christopher Cantwell and Christopher Rogers. This is their very first show. And when they wrote the pilot, they wanted to land writing jobs on series they already liked. And they basically wrote this show to emulate a lot of the dramas that, that inspired them to get into television shows like the Sopranos, the wire breaking bad. Joe McMillan was written in the pilot as this traditional anti-hero with the world organized around him uh, as the series was picked up and they began writing more episodes, uh, they found a different groove for themselves and they kind of changed it to becoming more of an ensemble piece. And Rogers has acknowledged that he and Campbell were inexperienced writers, but said they were careful to lay in these little grenades into each character, which I find to be really fascinating. And that ultimately they were able to give bigger roles to both Carrie Bechet as well as... Mackenzie Davis, and I think what started out as more of a corporate drama eventually became more of a human drama, and I think you see that uh, in this first season and how that evolution uh, comes to be. Uh, Something else I want to mention is that because of their inexperience, Cantwell and Rogers, AMC wanted experienced producers for the project, and they brought in two names who we have not really talked about, but they are important for another Uh, one of our shows in the archives, Melissa Bernstein and Mark Johnson, they were producing the network's television drama Breaking Bad, and they guided Cantwell and Rogers through the process of creating their pilot and were advocates uh, with the network. And AMC also chose someone to uh, bring on as a showrunner. A showrunner has a a lot of duties that are not just writing as far as uh, putting things together and organizing things. And since these two did not have a lot of experience... Uh, Jonathan Lisko is technically the showrunner uh, for these first two seasons. Uh, so, Kevin, you can see that. You, I think you see a lot of the inexperience in those early episodes especially. But I think as we are going to discuss, I mean, there, there's just exponential improvement throughout. And I think it's nice that AMC was still willing to give them a shot. And, yes, they got their executive producers in there and to make sure that things were going to run smoothly but perhaps that was for the best. And I think that I have to imagine they they probably did have 
Melissa Bernstein and Mark Johnson did have a lot of say in the show uh, in guiding Cantwell and Rogers because AMC has like these episode recaps on their YouTube channel. And I watched a few of those from season one and Melissa Bernstein's in Talking Head and I think all of them that I watched. So it's very clear that they're very hands on. They know what AMC likes. They've probably been not only they produced shows for AMC that were success, but they've probably either been in rooms with AMC people or have heard enough secondhand knowledge of AMC of what they like, what they don't like. Uh, pitfalls of shows that they don't like seeing all just all this other stuff, the, the experience they can bring to the table while AMC also gives these new writers a shot. And so I I can see why they're putting these people into place to have these fail safes for the show, but also still giving some fresh new blood a shot. And I think that's smart because if it is a success, then, hey, you've got some new writers that maybe you can shuffle around to other AMC shows as well. And then that just keeps your your network going in, in infinitum and if you don't ever give new people a chance, then you're never you're just going to have stale, burnt out people this whole time. And so uh, I, I commend AMC for their their process of the show of having built in people who have already proven themselves in the network with also some new writers uh, um, to just add a new perspective to it and perhaps be the benefit for AMC going forward. And when you have the same people in charge, you end up with 50 year old wrestlers from the late 90s challenging for world titles in 2021. You sure do. So I think one of the one of the show's pitfalls ultimately, I think, might actually be the name of the show, which is, of course, Halt and the Catch Fire. It it does make sense. It refers to a computer machine code instruction that causes a computer's central processing unit to cease meaningful operation, uh, typically requiring a restart of the computer. Uh, how do you feel about the title of the show? I mean, I guess that you kind of heard how great the show was, so it probably did not hinder you. But just can you take an outsider's perspective? How would you feel about a show called Halt and Catch Fire? I think it's one of those show names that I like, you know, I, like my girlfriend would come to the series and be like, what are you watching? I'm like, I'm watching Halt and Catch Fire. That title tells her nothing about the show I am watching. And in that way, it's it's almost too cute. It's like if you know what it is, then you get it. But if you don't get it, then you're like, wait, what? What is that? What does that even mean? And it's like there's the I think of it. There's a, a annual gaming convention in uh, our area called MAGFest, which stands for the Mid-Atlantic Gaming Festival. But if I say that to someone, they're like, what is it about magazines or like like print magazines or like magazines like a gun? Like it doesn't tell you anything if I tell you I'm going to attend MAGFest. So it's not the best name in the world. I don't know how much it may be hindered viewership or whatever, because I feel like if you see the commercial, you get an idea of what it's for. But just as a name alone, it's not it's not the greatest. Yes, I, I certainly I, I certainly think there are times when sometimes the names can hurt. I don't know if there was a better idea out there. They were clearly going for something, but I think that that may have hindered the show. And I think if you watch some of the the, the advertisements for the show and some of the needle drops that they picked I, I don't think that AMC always did the best job of, of promoting this show the way it needed to. And I think there are definitely times, especially when it comes off, like a, a second-tier Mad Men, which is unfortunate because as as the show evolves, I think it becomes something uh, so much different and uh, so much in, in some ways better, especially at the end. Uh, just one more note to point out that uh, Scoot McNary and Carrie Bechet, uh, they co-star as husband and wife in this show. 
And they also appeared as a husband and wife duo, Joe and Kathy Stafford, in the 2012 movie Argo. Fun fact for you, Kevin. That's awesome. I always love when stuff like that happens again, when you see a couple reappearing in something totally different like that. And hey, if the chemistry works, why not? Um, I've not seen Argo. I heard great things about it. There was a, I remember like I was going to go see it at a second round theater and never did, uh, but I've heard it's great. I never, I did not know of Scoot McNary, but I knew Carrie Bichet because she was in the, the last season of Scrubs, which a lot of people don't like, but I really enjoyed. Um, and so I was like, who is this person? And when I saw her, I was like, oh, that's Lucy from Scrubs. And I feel like maybe she's the one who gets most forgotten about because it's like of the new characters in that show. Because it was like Eliza Coop and um, uh, what's his name? Dave Franco were like the other two big people. So, uh, yeah, it's it's so it's crazy to see how those three characters, how far they've come. But I was like, oh, that's good for her. She's getting this other show. But yeah, I didn't know she was in Argo, which is probably – that's got to be a career highlight for both her and Scoot McNary. And I think, you know what, now that I think about it more, it's like we talk about the similarities to Mad Men and Breaking Bad. If they're unproven, these writers, I kind of can understand why they'd want to present something to AMC that is similar to those two shows that are a success to be like, hey, here's these are kind of like the shows that you had that were really successful. So please don't be afraid. Please don't fire us. <laughs> I, I certainly I can understand that. I, I think it's it's kind of a flawed plan, but it is certainly one that if you're an experience and you don't know what you're doing, and you're just trying to get your foot in the door, like that's 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 something that makes a lot of sense. And I think this naturally transitions us into talking about uh, the characters in a, in a general way. We're going to get into some of the more important plot mechanics as we go through, but I, I just kind of want to get some big picture thoughts and. We're going to start with Lee Pace as Joe McMillan because I think this is the character that I've always had the most difficulty with because he is so much Don Draper, Patrick Bateman, the typical anti-hero. I think the, the way I always describe Lee Pace is he is the he is a more suave version of John Cusack, uh, just in look and in the way that he speaks. He is also on another fantastic show, Kevin. Uh, did you ever watch Pushing Daisies? You know what? I haven't, but I feel like I own like the first season of the DVDs or the I own the first season on DVD because I heard how good it was and just never watched. That's only two seasons, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, it's very good. And of course, just like this show in a lot of ways, it did not get the credit that it deserved. Is is Lee Pace best known for Guardians of the Galaxy at this point? Do people even realize it's Lee Pace? So Right. So that's what I was going to say is I would say yes, but I don't even know because it's such a make-uped up character that people would even put it two and two together that Lee Pace is him. So, but I, w- I would say that's obviously the most visible role he's ever had is is that movie for sure. But does he get credit for playing that character? Well, I don't know. I knew it right away. Uh, I was like, oh, hey, it's Ronan. But I don't know. It's It's hard to say. Something that I laughed at is when they brought back Lee Pace for Captain Marvel, and I'm like, oh, this is kind of a make-good. They're actually going to give him more to do. And then he was in one scene. <laughs> <laughs> well, wasn't he in um, – I wonder if his stuff in, like, the Hobbit movies may be what he's best known for. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Do we <laughs> – Speaking of a movie, speaking of movies that I never want to talk about. (laughs) I'm just saying, just quality aside, whatever aside. I think the three Hobbit movies are actually equally in length to all four seasons of Halt and Catch Fire, actually. (laughs) I buy it. 
Uh, so I think Lee Pace is good. I think given what he is being asked to do, I think he excels in, you know, the talking fast and kind of BSing his way through things. I don't necessarily think the performance is the problem. I think that a lot of the problems with Joe McMillan come in just the way that he has written. And I'm going to keep coming back to that word, that cookie cutter kind of Don Draper light role. I think that is where a lot of the issues come in, but I do appreciate that there is, they do present um, some, they they complicate his character uh, quite a bit by, by addressing his sexuality and the fact that he is bisexual I think that is that is an important thing to talk about because you don't really get that even to this day on a lot of cable and network dramas. It's it's really something that does not get addressed as well as it should, but it is something that comes up a couple of times throughout the season. In the first case, it's a little bit on the problematic side because he's using it to manipulate a situation, but then later uh, we find out about a relationship that he was in, and I think that that makes it that makes it a little it makes it better. It doesn't make it seem like he was just faking his his potential queerness just for the sake of uh, faltering a deal. But I, I like Lee Pace. I, I think that Joe McMillan is a character that the show really has a lot of trouble with, and even even in looking at the totality, I'm I'm not sure if they ever quite cracked what the character should have been but it's it definitely it's definitely a lot better when you get to episodes 9 and 10 and the, by that point the show has become much more of an ensemble piece as opposed to the Lee Pace's Joe McMillan show I agree he reeks of Patrick Bateman and Don Draper and all these other sort of archetypes of an 80s business person in these few episodes just like a very vapid hollow husk of a human being who's putting on these presentations to sell to people. I at least appreciate that the people who are smarter than him in the room, that being Cameron and Gordon and Donna, uh, all see right through him and even Bosworth to an extent. Um, so I, I can at least appreciate that it, he isn't working his charm on everybody and that they go and they, and there's more layers to him. Like you mentioned with the sexuality thing, uh, his need for power uh, him realizing, uh, like, I, I really like him in those past few episodes when he makes a big business decision, he loses the person who he's connected with. Then he sees the Apple computer and realizes he screwed up. And then he has to go on his own little journey at the end of the, the, the season. So it starts out as this almost like you kind of roll your eyes and like, here we go. Just here's another character that I feel like I've seen a million times for. And then when they add the depth with the relationship, his history of his sexuality, his history with his father, and then the decision he makes for himself in those last two episodes, you're like, okay, there's a lot more to this character than I expected. And I don't know if that was a mid-season change or something they had planned for all along. And But either way, it worked for me in the end. And I think Lee Pace does a, a really great job in all facets of the role. Absolutely. And when going to our next character, Scoot McNary as Gordon Clark, I think Scoot McNary... He has just been kind of the king of prestige TV and even movies for the last 10 years or so. I mean, we talk about Argo. He was also in Batman v Superman, which, yes, you can roll your eyes. But to be in a movie like that, I would say is a big deal. He also did a cup of coffee in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I don't know if you remember him in that movie, Kevin. No, I don't remember him in that movie. Uh, Yes, Scoot McNary as Gordon Clark. He is very much experiencing 
kind of a pseudo midlife crisis. I don't think he's, I think he's a little bit younger uh, than Walter White, but he is definitely somebody who could potentially be going down that path of um, just not appreciating his family and not loving them because he is, he's looking for some sort of an outlet. And even though he does not trust Joe McMillan, maybe doesn't even like Joe McMillan, Joe McMillan has given him this lifeline of both creativity as well as um, creating something that can potentially help him take care of his family. And I think that that is something that we are certainly familiar with, but I think it really, it really becomes something very different because I think Gordon Clark, what you see in him is just from a creative standpoint, he is clearly somewhere in between Joe and Cameron in that he very, he very clearly is about practicality, but he does care about like how stuff looks and how things are presented. And that's something that I appreciate. And I think like we talk about like the stereotypical nature, Kevin, how do we, when do we first see Gordon Clark and how did you roll your eyes when, uh, when you saw it? Not as badly as I did, because I do think while him and Walter White are, a, are similar, they do have sort of some key differences in their background for Walter White. I think he's up. They're both at a place where their their stations in life they're unhappy with, but Walter White is more of a, what if, in terms of what happens with Gretchen and Elliot, what if he had held on to gray matter and become this millionaire who's respected and loved and charitable and all these other things, while at least Gordon went for it with a previous project and it failed. And it's a big failure that the, the shadow still looms large over him. But I think he has, and I think it's because of that, that he has to resign himself to just this menial job because it, it, as at least as we're told, it tore his family apart in some respects, or at least it caused a lot of damage to his relationship with his wife. And so I think he's, he's fearful of trying again, but also it leaves a lot of wasted potential. So I do think there is that difference there. And as you said, he may not like Joe, he may think less of him, he may see right through him. But I think he also realizes this is my chance to make good on my past failure. And if if you succeed here, then maybe maybe I'll get past that and I can move on and it's going to be different. And that's and that's something he has to say both to himself and to his wife and to his father-in-law and other people over and over again. It's not going to be the same failure again. So that so I do at least appreciate that distinct characteristic of it and, and at least. It takes Walter White a very long time to realize the damage he's doing to his family. And I think he is more to himself. He kind of lies to himself more about I'm doing this for my family. And then eventually he says he's doing it for himself or by the end of season one, he Gordon kind of understands the landscape and lays it out to his wife. Like, yeah, I, I know I'm not I'm not being the best father. I know it feels like I'm being distant at home and I'm not giving enough time to the girls and uh, and, and her and all these other things. But. I think he thinks if this succeeds, I can finally be that person you want me to be. And I think he wants to be that person he wants to be. So I do think there's enough distinctions between those characters that get sorted out earlier on than you may think. That makes you think, okay, this isn't just going to be Walter White again, where what took a little bit longer time with with Joe to get out of that uh, stereotype. Well, I think that one of the key ways that they break away from the stereotype is really by concentrating 
on the female characters. If you can believe it, Kevin, one of the things that you can do to freshen up your prestige television show is to actually, you know, focus on the female characters. What? What are you what are you talking about? That's crazy. That is crazy talk. But let's get into uh, the two pro- most prominent female characters. Of course, Mackenzie Davis, who I would argue is the breakout star of the show since since she has been on Home Catch Fire. She has been in such movies as Blade Runner 2049, Terminator Dark Fate, The Happiest Season. You can think whatever you want about those movies, but the fact of the matter is, is that she has certainly carved out a, a Hollywood career for herself. And of course, she has also been in a project like San Junipero, which is generally regarded as one of the better episodes of Black Mirror. And I think when we are first introduced to Cameron Howe, she is sort of the wild card. Like, she is the person who I think is supposed to be the audience surrogate in a lot of ways, because I think we are kind of meant to see this world through her eyes. And as much as Joe is a business person and Gordon has the the conflict of experience leading to the tension between what he wants versus what is practical, Cameron is basically all creative. This is what she cares about. This is what she is focused on for the entirety of the season. And she is definitely somebody who, even though she is working in the tech world, part of what drives her interest in the tech world is being able to give computers personalities. She even talks specifically about the computer that they are working on, the giant, giving it a soul. And once that soul is removed, she decides and makes an important choice that she needs to remove herself uh, from the Gordon Joe dynamic and explore something different uh, with some of the other programmers and coders. And uh, it's really a fascinating arc because it also will ultimately incorporate uh, the next character. But it's really interesting to me that they start they start off with Mackenzie very much as kind of this this stereotypical pixie dream girl. But where they end up with her is that she is basically the lead of the show by the end of the season, I would argue. I would definitely agree with that. And she's probably the most likable character by the end of that season, too. Because she comes out of, she's fresh out of college. She's going to college classes kind of just as a means to an end at this point. But it's clear that she's bored and she's already seemingly smarter than than other people in her class. And she's as ambitious as Joe and Gordon are, but in a different way. And she hasn't had these years of of corporate red tape or being told no or these failures to hold down her optimism and her her perspective. And yes, she has this kind of like rebellious nature, which kind of helps in that optimism too. And she's a little bit self-destructive, but she's also not somebody who's just going to take no for an answer because it's that's the way it's always been done or, oh, we can't do this because of X, Y, and Z. It's like, well, why not? Why can't we give this some heart? People are looking at this to be something that's competitive in the marketplace to be faster, to be cheaper, to have these features, these bells and whistles that might get it onto a stock shelf for all this. Or like you said, she wants something that has more of a soul that people are going to be able to connect to. It's not something they're going to buy to, to just be this home employee of theirs to get things done as fast as possible. She wants it to be something that people connect with that's has this more emotional attachment to it. And people don't really see that bigger picture. And, to the point where it's an easy thing for them to get rid of when it comes down to it at a 
at a moment of weakness in episode nine uh, and them ripping the heart and soul out of that computer rips the heart and soul out of that company. And I, so I think there's a, a great metaphor there, but she's also such a great uh, way for her to kind of give Joe a wake up call in the moments where he needs it. And their dynamic, you just start off as, okay, they, they fuck in the arcade. This is weird, but they become so much more than that throughout the se- the, the series. Um, and I think talk about pie in the sky. She views her relationship with Joe a little bit more intimately than I think Joe originally does hearing about Joe's past relationship with Simon kind of makes her realize what her, the future holds in store for her. And I think that leads to her decisions that she might make about where she goes in the, in the, the latter parts of the season. So your point about her being probably lead by the end, I think are well, are, are, are well-founded. And I think just because she has that, that optimism and doesn't have uh, all those years of being beaten down behind her makes her a character that I personally like and want to root for. And I think another one of the reasons that she is the lead by the end is she is, she has specific relationships with all of the other characters that I kind of have on the list as kind of being the main ones. Uh, I think her chemistry with Lee Pace, I think, is is definitely one of the more notable things about season one. Even if, yes, it it is kind of a cliche at this point to to have sex or nudity in the first episode of your prestige drama. It's something that HBO does all the time by putting nudity in the first episode. It's just something that happens, and you can see them falling into that trap. But I think that they are they are able to overcome that by. By having the relationship be complicated and dense and not always clear, are they boyfriend girlfriend? Like, what is what is the dynamic? Are they are they friends with benefits? And I think that that is actually helpful and useful because I think in this case Cameron has a lot of agency in the relationship, whereas I think on shows like Mad Men, the the women did not always have a lot of agency. So I think that's it's a good thing. And Cameron also has kind of a contemptuous relationship with Gordon and they don't always get along, even though I think those two are actually more similar than they want to admit. And that is probably why they don't always get along and fight the most. And then in the second half of the season, we kind of get exposed to Cameron and Donna's relationship. And I think that is also one uh, that is, that is very rich and there's a lot of potential there uh, that can be explored in future seasons. And she also, seems to have the closest relationship with boss and it is, it is not creepy, which is good, but it is very much like a father daughter. Like she is a surrogate daughter for, for, for John Bosworth. And that's also something that I really like that. She just has very different relationships with everybody else in the cast. I will admit when they had the scene with John and her, it after hours, having some drinks in their boardroom, I got, very nervous about where that relationship was going to go. And they didn't go that way. And I definitely had an exhale of relief when they didn't. And I'm, and I'm so glad they did because that would have been easy, lazy, uncomfortable scenes to do, but it showed that John kind of somewhere I was talking about with AMC seeing, seeing potential in, in young, fresh writers he sees something in her perspective versus his, his own perspective versus Joe's perspective versus the perspective of Gordon or, or all these other typical people. And I think he really listens to her when she says, I want people, I want this computer to have a soul for, and 
I like that. I like that about John. I like that about her. And I'm glad they did not take it in the direction that would have been off-putting. And I felt like there that with a couple of of scenes in the show, like the dynamic between Donna and her boss that becomes a former boss, that there's a bit of a role reversal in the genders of who pursues who uh, and how it's that. So there are some of those like we talk about cliche characters, but there are those scenes where you're thinking, are they going to go down this cliche route? And then they don't. And I'm like, okay, that's that's pretty cool. They kind of flipped on its head or they didn't take that that role. All right. So let's talk about Carrie Bechet as Donna. And uh, Kevin, I, I think you had an awakening uh, when you were watching the first season. Do you want to want to explain that? She's a very attractive woman. What do you want from me? I'm I'm just I'm just a man here, Jerome. Okay, a straight man. I'm, uh, yes, I am. I am. I am a cis heterosexual man. I, I can only I can only turn that part of my brain off so much. But it's also, I think, a lot of part of her the the strength of her character. You talk about expectations being flipped on her head when this show starts. And you see her picking up Gordon from jail after being pulled over for drunk driving. And you're like, okay, do we just have here the stereotypical housewife who has to work hard to keep the family together? But then you realize she has her own career. She has her own ambitions that she has to maybe put on hold because of Gordon's erratic behavior. Like someone has to be grounded and keep this family together. And I guess it's going to have to be her. But she also is incredibly smart. She saves Gordon's ass and saves the the company's ass on a couple of occasions. She doesn't use it to try to manipulate her way into a job, although, of course, she would have liked to have been offered. And then eventually, by the end of this, not by, you know, midpoint in the season, later half, she's like, I don't do I do I stick around with Gordon? Like how how much of myself am I going to let get sucked in by one man's pursuit and put all my hopes and dreams or my life on hold and let him tear apart this family and not be a contributing member to this family. And it gets her into pursuing her boss at one point, uh, which is not reciprocated. But I do love that she finds that ring that Gordon had told the story about after the fact and how much it means to her. And that gets her to change her mind from getting ready to leave Gordon to going on the trip with them to Vegas to try to sell their computer. And then I like the ending she does finally get offered a job with GE and she goes another direction. And so it's she gets finally offered a thing that I think she thinks she wanted. And then she decides, no, I'm going to go on my own path. And I think that it's a sign of her taking her own path. And then conversely, you see, I think Gordon needed her more than he realized. And he needed Cameron more and Joe more. And that's I know that's more about Gordon's character, but I love that. They didn't just make her the wife of Gordon. She is very much her own character in this show. And she sticks up for herself and uh, to the point of attacking her boss when he portrays her in front of everybody. And she's just an awesome, awesome character. Uh, And it made me really happy because it seems like there's the top three and then below them maybe is Bosworth and Donna. And then Donna kind of jumps up there and becomes a fourth main character by the end of the season. I love it. Right, because at the end of the first episode, there is this very interesting shot where it is Cameron, Joe, and Gordon kind of staying together. And by the end of the season, it is very much a situation where Donna is, if not the fourth, she might even be second on the call sheet at that point because uh, she is she's hanging out with Cameron, and it is unclear kind of where Gordon and Joe McMillan are going to be going after this first season. And 
I think that's something that I that I really loved that by the end of the season, the show is kind of it's becoming its own spinoff. Like instead of focusing on Joe and Gordon's pursuit, like now we're going to be focusing on this 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 gaming company and whatever comes from it. So I uh, very much appreciated that. And Carrie Bechet is so good on the show. Everybody's so good. But I think that what she is able to do and the fact that she not only gets something to do, but she also gets to not just be the nagging wife. And this is something that we could talk about for days with, you know, you know, Betty Draper and Skyler and Edie Falco and the Sopranos. But like, these are great performances, but ultimately they are not a main part of the action almost at any point. Like Betty Draper is not in the room uh, talking about advertising and Edie Falco is not whacking people, but in this case, like we get to see Carrie Bechet do the equivalent of those things when she is in the office helping to to fixing hardware and software, and she is in Vegas in the room with Gordon and with Cameron and with Joe, and even if she doesn't necessarily trust these people, like she has her own ambitions. And something else that I really also appreciated about the show is that Gordon and Donna like even though they have their marriage troubles like there is clearly a physical relationship there and that's not always something that you get with with a show like this i appreciate that there is a certain level of horniness on the show i do too and it's it's funny in the scenes where just like they come home and then immediately they're in bed together like i definitely i forget exactly which episode was but that made me laugh and then they have their own love language with each other and it gets them titillated in the when they're in Vegas and talking to each other on the computer with it. Um, and then they have that thing at the end, like uh, when when Gordon puts two and two together and he sees that their idea was stolen by her former boss and he realizes, OK, this didn't just come up during day to day conversation. Clearly, there is either pillow talk or some informal conversation that I need to address. And he brings it up and she owns up to it and and tells him that it was her who pursued him and how mu- how good it felt to do it and they don't just split up right then and there because there is more to their relationship than just this one thing and i real i think gordon realizes she didn't just cheat on him for no reason like he messed up and he owns up to that mistake and things turn better by the end of the season for them personally professionally they may not be on the same page and and we'll see how that goes in season two but there's a lot of love in that family and it's not just stay together for the kids it's stay together for each other. It's stay together to support each other through thick and thin. And there's a lot of weight carried by Donna in that aspect of it. But I do like that Gordon isn't a pushover. He brings it up. He asks the question about, did you, are you and him sleeping together? He gets his answer and he's pissed and rightfully so. But then there's that cool down of, okay, it's on me. And then he gives her credit when they're doing the presentation for the computer at the end. And there is that a lot of love between them. And I think they pursue that both in a, in a personal way. And like you said, in a very physical way, and you don't get that in a lot of shows and it is kind of nice to see. And of course there is Kevin secretly. I think Toby Huss as John Bosworth might be my favorite character. I don't know about you. I think you're talking to me about Artie, the strongest man in the world. That kind of blew my mind when I put those two pieces together. Uh, so there was a there was a documentary earlier this year that came out about Nickelodeon, and 
I don't think I was ever a regular Pete and Peach watcher, but I definitely was aware of the show and was just aware of kind of how weird it was. But to put those two pieces together was pretty interesting. I was hoping that I I was hoping that I could come on this podcast and blow your mind in that way, but you sussed it out pretty well. Which is surprising because they're nothing alike. He has this very strong southern accent, but I see his face and I'm like, I know that damn face. And I can't help myself. I gotta look it up. When I saw it was him, I was like, holy crap. First of all, didn't know that he was still alive, so good on you, Toby Huss, for making it to whatever age you are. But two, keeping keeping up a lot of acting work and making it to this this show he's essentially the he's the fifth lead i mean that's what he is almost from the first season and it's a bit surprising to see his name in the opening credits in those early episodes because he really does not get a lot to do other than just being a hard-ass boss but uh, even though he does not like joe mcmillan he does uh take an interest in cameron and doesn't just take an interest in cameron but he's also playing those silly code games as well which i found to be really refreshing as well that he's not just He's not just this old man who is, you know, he's 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 going through his own stuff with a divorce, but it's not like he's antithetical to what the show is trying to do. Like he is also interested in technology and in progress. And that's also something that I really like about the show is that it's not just the four main characters who are fighting like the fight isn't with their older predecessors because we know that, for example, Donna's father is also heavily invested in technology, and we know that Boz is as well, and we know that the the owner of Cardiff Electric is to some extent. So, I really like the fact that they're they're not fighting pro they're fighting progress in a different way because it it just seems like in this specific season they're a little bit behind IBM and a little bit behind Apple. Yeah, and he I think does the best job of not bringing his home life to work. He like he he has it the most together. And I think that has to do with age, wisdom, professionalism, what have you. And they could have made him because one thing I didn't realize was the show was in Texas. I just assumed it was going to be in Silicon Valley. So even that change of scenery is nice. And it's not like they get into the this very stereotypical Texan show either. You see it in their beer and maybe John Bosworth has a little bit of that, a little bit of good old boyness in him. Uh, But I do like that there's. He he susses out Joe in a way where he realizes, okay, this guy wants power. There's times he's going to undermine me. And then he calls in his friends, the police to pull Joe over. And that's a huge power play for him to be like, hey, I got friends, too. I you're you're not the only power in this situation, MF. And I thought that was a really cool thing for him to do. And when he ultimately gets arrested, he doesn't rat out Cameron or anybody else. He he takes it on the chin. And then you don't see him again for the rest of the season. He just gets arrested, and that's that. So crazy stuff with him. I could see him being kind of like the, um, the, uh, the, the unsung hero of the show in terms of one of the better performances. He just doesn't get enough screen time, I think, to make it into being more than, the, I think, the, the clear fifth of the five of the main people in there, too. Uh, and I do also like that there's the one scene where they were the and this is a great moment because I think it makes Joe realize that he's not making a deep emotional connection when they have that moment in the conference room where everybody wants to see Bosworth be the one to turn on the computer and not Joe. And that definitely affects Joe emotionally. It goes to show you what kind of leader they view Bosworth versus the type of leader they view Joe. So he he does so many great things in this season. So for you to say that Toby Huss is under maybe underrated, underappreciated, doesn't get the love he deserves, whatever, however way you want to put it, I think uh, is, is spot on. 
Uh, for sure. And I would also say this has nothing to do with anything. Also, I would say the most likely to go to a world-class uh, John Bosworth, also most likely to go to a world-class wrestling show in 1983 Dallas. He was definitely there when Michael Hayes cost Kerry Von Eric the NWA title on Christmas night. Absolutely. That's something that that uh, that definitely crosses my mind whenever I watch Halt and Catch Fire, knowing when and where it takes place. Uh, that's that's definitely something. Uh, but this show, of course, like everything else in the world, is shot in Atlanta, Georgia. I was about to ask for a spoiler. Is that they so they never get to go to the Dallas Sportatorium in any episodes? They they unfortunately do not go to the Sportatorium. Dang. And even it's shot in Georgia, they could maybe go to I don't know center. Ah, eh, center stage wasn't really a thing then. I don't know. What uh, we can move on. We can move on. Let's get into some of the more important plot elements. I think I I have to talk about the experience of Kevin watching uh, the first scene. Because uh, so I I had forgotten just how this the 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 show opens because you know I remember broad strokes but I don't I don't remember specific things like oh I don't know Joe running over an armadillo and the armadillo's body being still in the car when he comes around to look and I also forgot that um, he and Cameron uh, they get down in a bar bathroom just lots of lots of banter and antagonism right away Kevin and uh, I bet you were thinking what did I get myself into after watching that first scene. Yeah, I was like, all right, before the credits even start, we have this guy running over an armadillo and then doggy styling a younger woman in the in the bathroom of a barcade. What kind of show have I gotten myself into? Which it's funny, that opening scene is in no way representative of what the rest of the show is about. Not at all. So I, you have to imagine it's one of those like, let's get a really let's let's have an opening start like a, a opening segment that's really going to capture people and make them stick around after the commercial break. Yeah, it's uh it's pretty wild and then you immediately go into Donna bailing uh Gordon out of jail, but kind of the main crux of this uh the first episode is basically Joe kind of wheeling wheeling his way into uh, getting into Cardiff Electric so that they can uh, start building a a personal computer and in the first half of the season a lot of this is focused around the idea of just building a computer, not necessarily what I would what I would classify as this kind of a kind of a laptop, I guess. Like that's that's what I always assumed it. Like they are building a kind of a laptop computer ultimately. But when they first start out, it seems like Joe is much more interested in just getting revenge on IBM and the focus is less on the creative parts, but in order for him to actually have this thing created, he needs the help of Gordon, who is an experienced engineer and can kind of uh, jerry-rig things. And, of course, he needs Cameron's software skills. So that is how uh, these three uh, kind of build their relationship. And it's it seems pretty obvious, even from the first episode, that Gordon and Cameron are not stupid. And that's, that is something that I really appreciate. They kind of see the BS coming from a mile away. And even when, or when Gordon is talking to Donna, it seems like she even gets that this guy might be a bit of a huckster. And we even see how big of a huckster he is because after the Clark family sees return of the Jedi, we see that Joe has stalked them and tells Gordon that he wants to reverse engineer an IBM computer. Kevin, can you imagine a scenario where you're coming out of a star Wars movie and could just move on with your life and not have to dwell <laughs> on star Wars? <laughs> It, it's nice, but at least he's, the kids want to go back and watch him, and I uh, 
was VHS be up this in, in 1982 or would that be some other primitive form of, of home entertainment? I think VHSs were just like, it would be right at the beginning. That, that might be though, when like cassette tapes were like still like 50 bucks a pop or something like that. Yeah. So, uh, anyways, Joe obviously has done his research. Like this article really struck something in him and he realizes Gordon's my guy. But I don't – did they really go into detail? Like did he know who Cameron was before coming to Dallas or did his classroom thing – was he looking to discover his his person and identified her and that was that? It's not made 100 percent clear, but the impression that I get is that there is some sort – there is a connection. And yes, they, they did have sex in a bar bathroom. But I think it is very obvious from the get-go that their connection is not just physical, but there is also something to where they are connecting on an emotional and a mental level. Like they are clearly seeing like if they're if they're if we're playing chess, they're seeing the like the 40 version of it as opposed to just like making a computer and putting software in it like they very clearly have ambitions and even if those ambitions are not always aligned the impression that i get is that these two people like there's something there beyond just sex yeah i think they admire the chaotic spirit in one another i think they're both pretty volatile people in different ways and i think they both admire and find that quality attractive and i think there's part of joe that wants that volatility out of his programmer to maybe think outside of the box or know how to break things when need to to get things done and i mean let's face it joe's a very charming handsome person that there's that attractiveness probably from cameron's perspective and there's there's just a lot that they can identify with and they can both be compatible with each other but also offer each other different attractive qualities to one another that kind of make them a good fit both personally and professionally so we get a lot of legal there's potential legal action that can take place, and this is something that obviously threatens our main characters right from the get-go. But Cardiff Electric takes the makes the very risky decision to pursue this action of of building uh, their own PCs, and there's a lot of discussion about like who's going to do it, how it's going to be done. We have the for legal reasons. Apparently, uh, they separate Joe and Cameron into different rooms. And that's interesting because then you kind of get like Cameron's work, what Cameron's workspace looks like versus what Gordon's workspace looks like. And that is another great way that they differentiate these characters because I think it really kind of shows where they're at in their lives. Cameron is in this sprawling basement that looks like garbage and Gordon is in this, you know, this pedestrian office that, you know, it does have a window, but it's probably a little bit too small uh, for what he and his team are, are trying to do, but I, I really, I like the differentiation that that, that causes them. And I think that, I, I think the legal stuff is a mixed bag. I think we, we kind of have to start in this place, but I definitely think when you talk about some of the things that make the show feel a little bit on the cliche side, I think starting off with this legal plot and kind of getting bogged down in it for a couple of episodes, it certainly it certainly was uh, was not the ideal way to start, I would say. Uh, yeah, I didn't like any of that. I was and like they reverse engineered a computer and like I don't know they made it clear like are they trying to steal their hardware or just see what they're working with so they can go in a different direction or maybe a little bit of both? And it was just just not compelling television to me. I can see why that's something that they wanted to start with. I'm sure that was a very real thing 
in the 80s you had to be worried about when you had these hardware wars of people trying to put out these computers and stuff and one-upping each other and there's patents and copyrights and trademarks on ideas and all this other stuff but does that really make for the most entertaining television show no i don't think so and i don't think you really got like these great you got some good character moments but i think you got any like these great character defining moments of any of them talking to these people um but one thing i did like that you touched on was the office space is kind of representing who they are because i think for for gordon getting that office was like a big positive thing for him i think his like his ego is getting better in a healthier way and i think getting in that office like man if only i could tell you how much like office space means in terms of like from where i work in terms of like status or how much people care about having a window or not sharing an office all these little things so for him to move from a cubicle into his own office that has windows and more space and all this other stuff and privacy at that time, I think it's a big deal for him and it gives him a healthier ego based. And I think he sees like upward movement in his life and his career. While I do think Cameron wants that basement where she can play her music as loud as she wants, destroy things if she wants to just be alone and not be bothered. It, it's it's a perfect dichotomy for those two characters. Something that I did appreciate, though, I think the legal stuff is is very much a mixed bag, if not actively bad. But I love that the first time that we see Donna interact with Cameron, it's 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 very icy. It's very cold. And I think, again, we get kind of a representation of who Cameron is because Cameron is sleeping in her office basement and she is in the bathroom deodorizing, brushing her teeth, and basically brushes off Donna completely. And I would have to say logic dictates that Cameron probably just sees Donna as the wife with kids. And uh, that may not be something she is interested in at this point in her life. No, and obviously that perspective changes greatly throughout the course of the episode. And But there is that, I think, that surprise thing where Donna realizes, oh, Cameron's a girl. Weird that Gordon didn't mention that. Yes, and I'm glad that that is the only moment where they even consider having Cameron and Gordon hook up. Um, there's there's kind of something that they do a little bit later, but it's not romantic where they kiss, but it's non-consensual. But I'm really glad that they did not go in a love triangle direction because I don't think we would be talking about the show if they did that. Yep, it's it's another cliche that would suck and just be felt feel forced. So something else that comes up in episode two is the fact that Joe has scars on his midsection. We do not immediately find out the truth as to why he has those scars, but he does end episode two by giving this really huge speech about uh, what he's passionate about and talks about showing up the next day at 7 a.m. And Cameron points out that Joe is a liar, which is a perfect representation of what makes the show good. Joe making this huge, passionate speech, and then Cameron just calling him a liar. Yeah, it's great. And even throughout the course of the season, he he's telling these personal anecdotes, and you just never know if he's being truthful or not. Is he telling you a story to get what he wants, or is he really opening himself up to you? Uh, so we, as we go into kind of the next episode... The next episode, episode three, is kind of memorable for a number of reasons because uh, we get to see Annette O'Toole uh, playing Susan Emerson, who is Donna's mom. And we also get the great Gene Smart as Lulu Lutherford. And the only the only shame of this episode, Kevin, is that this is Gene Smart's only appearance on Halt and Catch Fire. I think you will agree. We 
all need more Dean Smart in our lives. Oh, God, yes, especially after watching Watchmen, uh, which I believe you may have done a podcast about, the the latest HBO Watchmen series recently. Go check that out, EntertheRealWorld.com. She's a tour de force in that show. She rules. She makes it great. And to see her here in a, a very different role, but equally doing an awesome job and and being somebody who kind of like Joe is is standing in her way and putting her foot down and another strong female character. I'll take it. I'll always take Jean Smart in any role I can get her in. The, like you said, the only shame is it was just a, just in this one episode for a brief moment. And episode three is where I think things become a lot clearer. And even though, if you, even if you don't understand the hardware dynamics of what a computer looks like, I think this episode does a much better job of, of kind of shifting the project in a way where it's going to be more compatible and make more sense to the audience. Instead of building just a PC, now they are building what is the equivalent of a laptop computer in 2021 terms. But in this case, it is going to be the size of a briefcase, which is about what laptops are these days. Uh, so they clearly had uh, some some ambitions. And we see uh, Gordon firing people. My favorite detail is Cameron taking fired employees things this amused me tremendously it is again this is one of those things where they are clearly starting to realize what they have in Mackenzie davis as cameron and they're doing these little character things and i love them to death just cameron wreaking havoc in the office tremendously amuses me it's very amusing and i almost think like she's almost like daring them to do something and I think there's maybe part of like, how far can I take this? Because because, again, I think she even points out to Joe, you need me more than I need you. Yes, I, I do understand that she realizes this is a huge career opportunity for her, especially at the point she is in her life, just being midway through undergraduate uh, college to be in such a huge role. But that also means that if she loses her job, it's not really that big of a deal. She can just go back to school. She can go find another tech job. And even just having GE on her resume is probably impressive. And she can make up an excuse as to why it didn't work out or what have you. So she has a lot of, I think, freedom in terms of just how she acts at work as within – you know, within certain boundaries, but I, again, her being kind of isolated and being the only woman who's not a secretary on this entire team of engineers and such, and gives her this, this, a lot of openness. Cause I just don't think they understand how to deal with her. Or they never had to deal with somebody like her before. And it's great to see her really poke the bear so many times. For sure. And there are a couple of moments that I just want to call out that become important as the season wears on. We got our very first Cameron and Boz extended interaction as they are both at the office very late. And I think this is something important to note because of the conversations and what they ultimately perpetrate uh, later on in the season. And Cameron also gets her first check and, of course, splurges by checking into a hotel. And uh, she is writing code on the mirror as uh, she is uh, kind of struggling uh, with what she is being asked to do. Uh, so Gordon and his neighbor, next door neighbor, as a matter of fact, 
Uh, they work together at the office. I don't know whether this is one of those situations where they wanted the neighbor to be kind of a more prominent role, and this was kind of their way of getting out of that. But by the end of the episode, uh, Gordon has fired his neighbor basically for not seeing the future, and he wants to kind of move forward on this project. And we know that the neighbor is evil, Kevin, because of his 80s mustache. Yeah, it's the mustache, and there's just like something about the way he talks and like he kind of is a um, an eavesdropper. There's just something about him where you're like, I don't really like this guy. I don't trust this guy. And uh, turns out my instincts were correct. But I, and you see this like as they go about and Cameron does this power move too to finally get the role she realizes she deserves. But they're really they're really gutting the team and paring it down to just the people who are on board and. It's awkward that his neighbor had to be a, a victim of that that situation, but at the same time, uh, definitely a bit of a of somebody not to trust, a bit of a creep for sure. And there's a there's a couple things with time that that don't make sense, which I'll get to in a minute. One of the things that I think prestige television we talk about these cliches is how nobody gets along with their parents, and you do get that with Joe. But I really like the fact that Donna and her mom get along. And I know that's a really stupid thing to actually be a fan of, but I'm so used to conflict being generated from parents and children not liking each other that it felt very refreshing in this case for them to not have a terrible mother-daughter relationship. Yeah, always refreshing. You still do get the the in-laws with, with um, Gordon and her parents in their direction. But at the same time, they... It, it comes from the past failure that he had, and it comes from them just making sure that whatever Gordon's doing or whatever is going to be best for their daughter and their grandkids. So you can uh, you can understand the perspective and why they aren't on board with him professionally in all of his pursuits, especially because they see it because she uh, Donna has such a strong relationship with her parents. They see how it affects her. So that that all works. So I think we, we have to talk about the, the very important scene as uh, Joe and Boz are trying to raise capital and they are doing this at the home of Lulu Lutherford as played by Jean Smart and she has a boyfriend and Joe, because of the fact, even though he is very clearly a liar and a manipulator, he is also good at reading people and reading people means having a really good gaydar. And I guess that that means that he is able to read something in the boyfriend. And it is at this point that we find out the, the possibility that Joe may be, may be bisexual. And it's not something that is confirmed until later on in the season, but it is, it's a little bit clunky in this episode. I think the later episodes kind of massage this moment significantly, but here it just comes off like Joe is manipulating someone's sexuality for his own gain. And that's not, that is not the coolest thing in the world because he does ultimately get the deal trashed, which is, what he wanted but it's just it's it's a little bit on the awkward side it is but i i there is a part of me that likes it when he comes back and and uh kind of just looks at her like who has the power now <laughs> I, that's just that's just such a joe move to me but uh again i it doesn't get it, i think this helps lead to the power move with the police that bosworth pulls off so and you're right it does get massaged out later but i definitely have questions like is he is he gay or bisexual or is he just doing this to manipulate people but like you said once you have the context of it later it it smooths out but i i i i had 
I, I felt okay about it, but there was definitely like, a, okay, if they don't, if they didn't sort that out, this would definitely be a little bit of a black mark on the series. Uh, for sure. Something I had a question about, Kevin, is so we see that Gordon walks out of the neighbor's car, right? But then he walks home, but it doesn't seem like he gets home until much later. And the question like I had is, where the hell is he? That's a great question. I, I do not have I do not have an answer for you. So so that was that was kind of a weird way to end the episode. But I'm very happy to say episode four. It's not my favorite because I think that goes to episode nine, but I think episode four starts to realize the full potential of what the series can be because it's, it's not quite a bottle episode, but essentially what happens is is Joe invites this, this wall street reporter to come down and write about this startup tech company, which is the kind of article that I think we've gotten really used to, especially on in places like Wired and BuzzFeed and things like that. So basically, Joe engineers, pun very much intended, kind of a crisis at Cardiff to the point where Cameron is kind of left very emotionally distressed about, you know, backups and files that are not there. And what they ultimately have to do is they have to call Donna in to save the day. And even though Joe has manipulated this situation, the idea behind this episode is that we are realizing Donna as a full character. Like she gets to play in the same yard as Don, as Cameron and Joe and Gordon, which is not something that you typically see on these prestige shows. And here, even if the situation is manipulated, Donna definitely knows what she's doing. And I really love this episode. And it's not, I mean, the plot and like the actual the, the the mechanics of the vacuum cleaner causing a surge and like it's kind of nonsense but what you're really gonna what you're really gonna take away is that you get all these different character moments and and the, the reporter is even a part of this as well but you get the moments with Cameron and Donna and the conflict that exists between those two and Cameron even calls Donna a bitch at one point and Donna says that Cameron doesn't respect herself. Uh, for still sleeping with Joe, which is kind of a kind of a mean thing to say, um, but I really, really love this episode. It's probably one of my favorite of the series, and I'll let you talk about your thoughts on the episode. Great episode. I thought it was a really great pro- plot. I thought it was the coming out moment for Donna to come in and save the day, and then come in and present Joe and say, "I know that you created this problem because of all the things that she found and." Joe says, well, I got what I wanted out of the story, not really caring that it caused this argument and this rift between Cameron and Gordon. And he even tells her that you'd probably be in your best interest to not tell your husband. And then she goes and does because she knows that it's probably something Gordon needs to know. And it speaks a lot to Joe's character. And I like that she did that because she wasn't going to be intimidated by or afraid of Joe or any of the repercussions. She's not an employee with the company. Um and what I also like is just the one scene where the reporter's down there and Donna fixes it. And she's not there for glory or anything or what have you. But when she hears her husband give a fake alias to the reporter, it definitely sticks in her somehow. Like maybe I maybe there is something about uh, me not getting heralded properly for this feat that uh, does stick in her cross. So lots of great interactions and elements here. Definitely like the first episode that made me perk up a little bit and think, okay, maybe 
maybe this is going to be different, a different experience than I am anticipating. And the other thing that I like, just the visual of that scene is Donna fixes everything and then all of the men go off in glory. I, I think that's a very that's a very powerful moment because it is literally all dudes that are kind of backhanding <laughs> each other and praising each other. And Donna just kind of gets left by herself. But I also like the fact that Donna susses out Joe for engineering the problem. I think that's also, again, you called it the coming out party. I think that's absolutely the case. And I just, I really appreciate just everything that they did with Donna because they, they make her the fourth character uh, in this show. And in this episode, we also get Joe getting beaten up by the cops and Boz comes to bail Joe out. And it's very clear that Boz has his own connections. The other thing that I really like, so Joe tells Donna not to tell Gordon about what happened. And I think that there are some dramas that would have perhaps prolonged this and turned it into a focal point. Now, it does become a focal point for Cameron later. Right. But Donna just immediately tells Joe what happened. I'm sorry. Donna tells Gordon what happened. And I really like that. Like, there's no that that would be unnecessary drama. You don't because they're husband and wife. Like, of course, she's going to tell him. Like, even if they're not totally getting along, that is absolutely the kind of thing that you would tell your significant other. Right. And I and I love that she tells him, but doesn't tell her. And. And really, she almost kind of leaves it in Gordon's hands. Like, if you want to tell her, you now know this information. Do with it what you will. Uh, my other question for you, Jerome, is when they're all celebrating when she fixes the code but doesn't give her the proper credit, do you think it's because the engineers are sexist or because they're scared of talking to a g-g-g-girl? I think it might be a, a combination of both of those things. The way you said g-g-g-girl just amused me tremendously. It's that and g-g-g-ghost. has to be done sometimes. Yes, I uh, I totally agree. And speaking of the audacity of men, let's get to episode five where Cameron has a new boss named Steve. And I don't know, like when you're casting a character like Steve, do you, are you just like, yeah, we need somebody who just looks like they've never had sex with a woman? Because, I mean, I'm not here to cast aspersions, but like that is so clearly what they looked for when they casted Steve. What a it, what a performance. It also makes me wonder, like, what do these casting calls read like and how much like understanding of yourself do you have to be to read a character like this and just be like, I'm a human weasel. Let me go try out for this part. You know what I mean? Like there there has to be a lot of just like internal understanding and acceptance of yourself to sometimes read a casting call and know this is who I am or this isn't who I am. I really I just I mean, again, they're, they're really unlocking Cameron as a character. And we just, like, she emasculates him in the best possible way in the end. And I really, this is a great Cameron episode. What you also get is a lot of familial interactions as Gordon sucking up to his father-in-law as they play golf so that they can uh, have dinner with the Japanese. And that's a really important moment that we can talk about. But I really love that Cameron wants to name the computer Lovelace. But, of course, the male engineers think that Lovelace is named after who? Uh, I I don't remember who they said. All I thought it was Heidi Lovelace. A porn star. Oh, okay. Okay. But nope. Ava Lovelace was the first ever female computer programmer 
Nobody else in the office apparently knew who Ava Lovelace was. But this actually comes back much later when Cameron goes to Joe's apartment, runs into Joe Sr. And Joe knows who Cameron is, calls her prodigy the modern Ava Lovelace. And they 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 develop a kind of a bond to an extent because Joe, on the surface at least, comes across like the type of person who knows who Ava Lovelace is. And that might mean... Maybe he's a little bit more progressive and not an asshole like the engineers who thought Cameron was trying to name it after a porn star. And let's let's be clear. When you say she goes back to Joe's apartment, you're not talking about Jerry O'Connell. He's nowhere in this apartment. That is that is a true fact. Let's talk about the scene in the restaurant with the Japanese as Gordon kind of makes an ass out of himself uh, by getting drunk really fast and and saying terrible things about his father-in-law and I just I love how clueless Gordon is in this scene because there are very few times like Gordon comes off he can embarrass himself sometimes but this was just so clear even in the moment that he was fucking up royally and it was uh it was a little bit awkward to watch at times because you knew he was messing up and they're very much playing in more of Joe's world uh than in Gordon's world and I uh, it's it was a really fascinating episode for that reason, because you really kind of get the characters separated a little bit more. You don't get as much Donna in this episode, but this is very much exploring kind of Cameron and who she is and kind of the, the complicated nature of her family while also trying to navigate this asshole manager at work. And ultimately, she becomes the manager. She becomes the captain now, Kevin. Yeah. And that's the role that she should have had this whole time. Yeah, the the Japanese scene is great because it goes to show just how uncultured uh, that Gordon is. He's he's great at what he does as an engineer and a computer person, but he just doesn't have that much life experience with actually cutting deals and dealing with businessmen, especially of other cultures. And I do think there's probably a, a few instances in the American world where sharing some drinks and maybe over overeating, overindulging having that physical contact and, you know, talking about your dumb father and stuff there, there's parts of that, that maybe some American people might find endearing because if they don't have the best relationship with their father or something either, it makes it a more relatable quality and it shows your humanness in some of the ways. But for the Japanese, these are all signs of disrespect and like, you're not taking the business seriously, especially when it's his father who was the connection to get G in the door and have this meeting anyways. So he messes up. But what I also like is that he takes that moment to ultimately humiliate Joe because Joe goes and talks to the Japanese businessmen to smooth things over. But what he doesn't realize is that Gordon on his own went to his wife's parents and had him smooth things over for them. And that way, when Joe comes in acting like he fixed things, he can tell him you didn't do shit in front of all the engineers and they can laugh at him. So it's a lot of different layers of things going on between this just based out of this one meeting. Uh, for sure. And uh, we also get our first interaction with Donna and uh, and her boss. And I, I referred to them as both assholes, but I think in a lot of ways, Steve is, is so much worse um, just on the surface. But as we will very soon realize, uh, Donna's boss uh, definitely has some ulterior motives. And I don't know about you, Kevin, but whenever I saw Hunt on the screen, I uh, 
I I definitely got some Ted vibes. Big Ted vibes and also just somebody who I'm like, I couldn't stand working for you. Yeah, because like he's not a complete like on the surface asshole, but there's something there beneath the surface that makes me hate him. It, it, it feels like to me like he's in a role where a lot of his success and being able to put on this front of being successful, a lot of it is on the backbone of Donna and he doesn't appreciate it as much as he should. And in those moments where he shows appreciate, it's almost like an abusive relationship while he'll get mad at her for having a report out of order or this or that. And he suspends her when he probably shouldn't have. And that, but then like, Oh, they have a nice lunch together and he compliments her. And so like, and that's in his mind, like that's enough. And that buys me five more times to be mean to her. And it's just like this weird dynamic. And you just know, now that we know Donna's potential and what she can do, you're like, why is she here? Why is she working for this guy? She can be so much more. I think that's part of it too. So episode six, I think is really important for a lot of reasons. Um, Let's talk about the least important one first, because in this case, Donna mentions Cabbage Patch Kids to her husband, which legitimately, truly was one of the most popular toys in the history of toys. I cannot even... I can't even think of a modern day equivalent. I mean, we had like a Tickle Me Elmo, I know was a big deal in like the 90s, but I I can't even process like in 2021, like what the equivalent of Cabbage Patch Kids. I mean, maybe the PlayStation 5, but that's not even for kids. There's nothing like that I don't think is as ubiquitous. There's things like within the niche of whatever they are like. You know, like if you're a really if you're a really big like wrestling figure person like these AEW figures, like their distribution and popularity is off the charts. But it's within such a small sector of people within that very specific collector community. And I'm sure there's like that stuff with like Star Wars or the Marvel Legends figures, like all these things. But like this one big thing that every kid wants, that every parent wants, that all these stores are sold out of, I think in the days of the Internet um, and just – they're not being this phenomenon like that. Like you're right. It's like kind of like there was uh, like the, like those digital pet things. There was Furbies. There was the tickle me Elmo's all that stuff in the late nineties. Then you have like a video game console every so often. But yeah, that, that one, that one toy like that, that you go out and chase, maybe we're just too old to, to know these things, but I mean, you're not going to, the the days of where you're calling these stores and and all these things like that, like the internet just made it so much easier because uh, there's even like those websites where you can check like stock inventories online and whatnot uh, to not waste your gas or trip or time or whatever. Uh, it really does put it in put you in a a, a place in time watching uh, the Cabbage Patch Chicks. And while it was somewhat inconsequential, it it did give me a chuckle like when <laughs> when the guy. Uh, ripped off Joe and Joe smashes the window in the rain and things like that. So at least it gave me a couple laughs. But the main reason that they're, they're, they're trying to get Gordon away from the main action, because I think a lot of the focus of this episode is on Joe and kind of what he's going through, because at one point uh, he and Cameron are in, in the bedroom and Cameron asks about the scar and Joe, Joe feeds her uh, a BS story. She even, even calls him on it multiple times but for some reason, he is not willing to reveal uh, kind of what's going on. I mean, you kind of see how cold he is and kind of how much a BSer he is. And at one point in this episode, Joe says that they have a full kind of 
model that they can go with. And as Joe is going to press the button, everybody wants Boz to press the button instead. And this is a very important moment because it's clear that Boz has, even though Boz is older and may not be as directly involved, he is very clearly more enjoyed and respected as compared to Joe, and we see Joe get to be a, a little bit uh, a little bit sad. What I also think is is interesting about this episode is that we get a lot of interactions, not just with Joe and Donna, but with Joe and the kids. And surprisingly, Joe is actually good with the kids and helps them not be scared because of a of a hurricane that has hit the uh, that area of Texas. So we get to see a lot of Joe with the kids in some fun interactions. And we get to see that he is not just uh, a psychopath, that there, that there is a little bit of there there because he doesn't have to be nice to Donna and the kids, but he just is. And I guess this, this moment, it's a bit of an aha moment for him as he then goes to visit Cameron and talks about what actually happened, that he fell three stories and last basically landed midsection on a fence because his mother was experimenting with drugs and he spent two years in a hospital bed. So we kind of get the, the tragic backstory of Joe McMillan in this episode. And I think it does a lot to kind of humanize him. And even though he is still kind of the anti-hero, I think it's good to know kind of where he is coming from. And with him playing the kids, he's not a complete monster. Right. I would say I would argue that he does have to be nice to Donna and the kids because I feel like Donna holds a lot of power with Gordon. And I think he still thinks that Donna hasn't told Gordon or anybody about the stunt he pulled, but he did not need to go as above and beyond as he did with the kids and staying around all these hours. He could have realized Gordon wasn't showing up and left. He didn't have to go out in the rain and get soaking wet or play with the kids as much as he did. So. Well, I do think he needed to make her happy. I mean, this is really above and beyond for him. And it did give him that realization. And it did show that humanity part of him that I feel like we're like, is is there a person in there uh, with Joe? And there is. There definitely is. And you get that again in uh, with Cameron at the end, too. And I do like this is the episode that Boz gives Cameron the quote about, you know, you're the future and there isn't anything scarier than that that she repeats at the end of the season, too. So. Real good stuff all around here, and poor Gordon just going to get those Cabbage Patch kids. He just shouldn't have. Uh, he just shouldn't have made that promise. I like he he he's trying to be the good dad and make this promise here, but just knowing how how hard it was to get those things, I really felt for him, especially just seeing him get soaked and break and vandalizing that store while his wife and Joe are at home in the with a warm meal and and all this other stuff. It's uh. Yeah, it was quite quite the episode for sure. You know, for a show that admittedly is not as heavy as Breaking Bad, Gordon commits a lot of felonies this season. He sure does. Uh, but you know, 1982, I guess, in the middle of a of a hurricane, if you smash a window and there's there's no cameras or anything around, who's gonna know? And it also helps that Gordon Clark is white. <laughs> well, you said it. I did say it. Uh, we also get uh, you want. I'm going to give you the opportunity to talk about Yo-Yo because you are a big fan of this character. And it is actually important. It doesn't seem important at the time, but here we kind of get introduced to uh, a game that Cameron is working on because she is looking for a creative outlet. So uh, games on computers are very different because they're very text-based. 
but she and Yo-Yo are kind of playing around with this game. And I know that you're a big fan of Yo-Yo. Yo-Yo rocks. I have I have a, a soft place in my heart for the, uh, the, the chubby engineer with a heart of gold. Um, and Cameron seems to admire him too. And you almost think that like that might take a romantic turn at times just because they're a similar age. But it really eventually just comes off as being both have an admiration for each other's engineering abilities and their abilities to break code, create things, have this ingenuity with him. And she sees a lot in this team. And I think, you know, now that she's the manager, she really needs to connect with these people, see what they're made of, what they're capable of to be able to utilize them to their fullest extent. And it's going very well for Cameron. I I think Uh, they seem to respect her. She seems to respect them. Uh, and I think she's getting more confidence in being able to be like, you know what? I think I can I can do this. I think I can be uh, a manager of of these folks and similar ages, similar pursuits, um, similar opportunities to break out and really make something important. Uh, and I think Yo-Yo epitomizes all those characteristics very well. So another important thing about episode six, not to do with the plot, but this is something that Kevin pointed out to me, and I had already put it in notes that we were going to make this a discussion point. But the the writer of episode six is Zach Whedon. And I'm sure you're thinking to yourself, well, Jerome, there is another very famous Whedon, that being Jed Whedon, the, the, the author and the showrunner of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. for seven seasons. And yes, he and Jed Whedon are brothers. Hmm. Jed Whedon, the most famous Whedon, you think? Uh, the, we, are, we are only dealing with non-canceled Whedon brothers, Kevin. Hmm, okay. I'm joking. Of course, Zach Whedon is also brother to Joss Whedon. Joss Whedon, who has created such TV shows as Firefly, Angel, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mike and Matt did a Firefly podcast series that you could find on Enter the Real World. But Zach Whedon... Uh, this is this is kind of his uh, his episode to write, and we will talk about Zach Whedon again in relation to this show. Okay, yeah, I saw that, and I I knew of Jed, but I did not know of Zach, and I was like, oh, that's really interesting that you have these three brothers all in all in Hollywood doing uh, pretty important big things. Well, I'll tell you this, you know, I love Buffy, Angel, Firefly, what else? Even Dollhouse, I, I I liked for what it Bless was. Bless your heart for liking Dollhouse. There's a, it's not perfect, but you know what? Well, well, I'm just gonna say that. But if if the so if the artistic writing is is in the bloodline, then it gives me optimism for Zach Wheaton being on the show. Let's put it that way. Character be damned, or other things about those people that may not be so admirable, just with the writing quality alone. Seeing a Whedon on here definitely uh, raised an eyebrow. Episode seven, we get into this, and this is a very important one because we fully realize that, yes, Joe McMillan is bisexual, and uh, we get to see a former partner of his uh, by the name of Simon Church. As it, it, he shows up, and there there is very clearly a thing that exists between he and Joe and apparently Simon is going to do uh, some design work uh, for the new computer that they are working on. And there is, there's a lot of character work being done for Joe. And at one point, it's unclear whether Simon is going to finish the work. Uh, but they have this very important confrontation outside of uh, the hotel as they get out of the cab. And it's a really great scene because 
it seems like there is the the possibility that the Cameron thinks that oh it's just going to be those two and they're going to go off and do whatever they're going to do, but Joe actually runs back to the car and ultimately decides that he wants to stay with Cameron, and I think that's it's a really important moment for their relationship at this point, but it is also worth noting that this is it would be it would be really hard for a show like this uh, to deal with the AIDS epidemic in a in a sustained way because that's that's not what the show is about. That's not even necessarily the world that the show is playing in. But I am glad that at least gets some cursory mention here as Simon realizes uh, that he does have HIV or AIDS, and it's uh, it's not going to end well. But I, I appreciate that they are addressing it. It's it's just unfortunate that one of the few. Uh, one of the few black characters on the show is going to have such a tragic end. Yeah. Although he makes a big impact like this, this is one of my favorite episodes of the season. A lot of it has to do with Simon and, and the small amount he's able to achieve in this episode, like the scene with him and Cameron in the art gallery and realizing like really just laying on the line, like this is what my relationship with Joe was. And he left me and I'm just giving you this warning. It's probably the same road you're going to go down if he gets bored with you. Uh, and I think that gives her and, – and I think this conversation adds more to what happens in other opportunities that she may get in 8 and 9 and 10 and what Joe does and a conversation she has with someone else at the exhibit and all these other things. This conversation plants those seeds to give more weight to those conversations later and making her realize what – what her and Joe are, what, what their end is probably going to be. And a lot of that comes from Simon in that scene. So this, this episode I thought was fantastic. And a big part of it was because of this Simon side story. And this is also an important episode because of what happens with Donna and hunt as they, they go on a business trip and they have dinner and there's a point when he grabs her hand uh, and they have this very flirtatious moment, which leads to her taking over the piano, playing it very well. Uh, when the regular player leaves, I'm not sure how much that was appreciated, but clearly Donna sees that something may be going on here, uh, but she has apparently misread the tea leaves as she kisses Hunt, and Hunt kind of backs away from it. Like, I don't know what to think about that necessarily. He did grab her hand, and I'm not sure that's appropriate for a boss and a subordinate to do. I could kind of understand why she did what she did. Like just from a reading the tea leaves and we're going to have sex on this business trip. Like I certainly see where she was going. And when Hunt broke away, it was a little bit weird. Yes, but I think he misled her. Like if you grab the hand and you're having drinks and things like this, like that uh, to me, that reads as a pretty clear sign that that's what, what you're hoping for. And I think he kind of leaves her out to dry when he turns on advances and I'm not saying he should have gone for it, but I don't think he takes the full ownership over that situation. He should have, because if I was Donna and I was reading the situation, I think I would have read it the same way that, that she did. Um, and so I think that that partially leads to the reason why we both kind of view hunt as a villain here. And then of course we get that confirmed in episode nine. Um, but I, I understood Donna's perspective in every way, why she would uh, try to have an affair w- uh, with her boss, 
why Gordon may have led her to that point, all the frustration she felt, everything else. So I definitely felt bad for her uh, in this episode. And then, of course, Hunt resigns and leaves, and she's kind of left on her own to deal with whatever consequences may come of that. Meanwhile, Gordon is making a mess of the house as he decides that he is going to reassert his manhood after having his design ideas kind of thrown out. Joe has named the uh, the computer, and so Gordon decides, well, I'm just gonna need to make this this already pre-made lasagna. We're gonna we're gonna make dinner ourselves, and of course, the house turns into a complete and utter disaster. And there is even a point when he and the kids. Uh, when the kids are digging a hole in the yard, and then he himself is doing that later on. This is uh, this is a weird episode for Gordon because he also begins the episode by screaming in his sleep. Yeah, Donna has to leave a psychopath who, by the way, he's like mumbling him to himself and like a like pre-preparing a speech or a presentation while she's trying to say goodbye to leave and doesn't get attention. Then she comes home early because she's felt feels so guilty and embarrassed by the situation to find her husband digging a massive what could be interpreted as a grave from coming home. And it's just like, what is what is her life right now? What a what she left a crazy man and came home to a crazier person. How could that be? It's uh, it's pretty incredible. I just I love I just love Gordon and Donna's relationship so much because you never know what you're going to find out about these two characters in every given episode. And I love the fact that they are, that they are still, still trying to make it work. And despite all of the problems and all of the issues, I am, I'm just a, a tremendous fan of, of their interactions because they, they also have chemistry. I think just like we talked about, uh, Joe and Cameron having chemistry. Like it's very clear that Scoop McNary and Carrie Bechet have a lot of chemistry. And I don't know if they watched Argo and made that decision or whether it was through the auditioning process. But I just I love the way that they explore the relationship that is very different than I think we've seen um, in other prestige shows. Because in other prestige shows, it's generally the man that that does the cheating. But in this case, it's Donna who almost does it. And there isn't even a moment when when it is it is never teased that Gordon has been unfaithful to his wife. Exactly. I, that's why I was saying earlier, like I like that they do the role reversals. It's not the boss, the male boss who pursues the female subordinate. It's the female subordinate who pursues the boss that she goes out on her own to try to cheat on her husband. So many just changes make it so much more distinct and interesting Um that I really appreciate them making those changes and or not changes, but those choices. And you're right. Donna and Gordon have really great chemistry. I'm sure working together in Argo helped that quite a bit, but the fact that they had the wherewithal to cast them together as husband and wife here, whether by choice, you know, maybe they were big Argo fans and decided to bring those characters in the show or just through the process, they made those choices independently and decided to put them together. Either way, great dynamic, great choice, really interested to see where their relationship goes. Um, but I will admit there is still a part of me that there's that part of my stomach that is uh, expecting the worst. Of course, uh, I totally understand that. And as we go into the next episode, this is the pre-Comdex episode. It's the, they're going to be trying to go to this huge event in Las Vegas to show off the computer. And we get some... Uh, discussion about who's going and who isn't. And Gordon is excited about going to Comdex until he finds out that he's not. And Joe says that a previous failure is ultimately 
uh, why he cannot bring uh, Gordon along. And then Gordon decides, oh, I'm going to spend $455 to pay my own way in there. And when he tells Donna, she agrees because she is feeling guilty about what she has done. And she herself has uh, a bit of an awkward confrontation as uh, Hunt drops by Donna's house. And they have a conversation. And then she goes into the house and the neighbor is just creepily standing there. And then <laughs> you're thinking to yourself, well, this doesn't mean anything until it does. Well, isn't uh, was this also after Cameron goes and vandalizes their home and he comes in their house with a gun? Yes. Yeah. Which we, that was... which we did not mention, but uh, that was a wild scene. Yeah. Because that's Cameron leaves when she has a bad interaction with Donna and stuff. And so she wants to get some revenge and steals the car to go to their house. And yeah, and then he comes in and kind of saves the day with a gun and she doesn't do anything. But it's a uh, it's scary because I'm like, oh, Cameron's going to get shot in the face. It is Texas after all. Uh, so shoot first, ask questions later. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that is the stereotype that is attacked in Texas. Uh, but also the big thing I love is, again, I was talking about the, the stuff with the ring is she finds this ring in his workspace and she gets all teary eyed. And then you jump to Joe's apartment where Gordon and Cameron are talking and Gordon talks about how I pawned her her engagement ring to fund the their uh, their first computer, the symphonic. And he made a promise to her when he made his first sale, he'd give her a ring and he has now purchased that ring because he's so confident in the giant. And so I think she, being Donna, is having all these thoughts about like Gordon has given up on our home life and he is just too immersed in this thing with the giant. And I think that ring and the fact that he's purchased it and found it again makes her realize that he's not as far gone as she thinks. And I think that's that helps make the decision when he comes back. She isn't packing up to leave him. She's going to Vegas with him to help him pursue his his dreams and his passions. And I think that makes all the difference in her mind. And I and I really, really like that. So we'll get to the important element as to why the four of them are traveling to Vegas together. But you said uh, you pumped your fist when Donna decided that she was going to Vegas with Gordon. I did. I'm I'm really hopeful for Gordon and Donna. I like them together. I really like that couple. And so when she didn't leave him and decided she was going to uh, support him in his ventures and go out with them. And because I also now know how valuable Donna is as an engineer and as part of this puzzle, I'm like this. this now this whole team is even stronger with her there. And it made me think that they were going to be it gave more faith in their success with her being there, to be honest with you. So. Everything about her tagging along made me very excited and, and and made me want to jump into episode nine when this episode ends with the four of them hitting the road. I'm like, oh, yeah, baby, let's go to Vegas. Absolutely. Uh, the, so the important element of this episode, perhaps the most important element, is that Cardiff Electric has, has very clear financial problems because of all this money uh, they are investing into this computer. And that is something that is the reality for a lot of tech companies that they have to put all this money and invest all this money. And it is a tremendous risk. And in this case, uh, the risk was taken on by Boz and Cameron. Boz is kind of the perpetrator of, of this, of the hack, but it is revealed that Cameron basically is the one who, who pushed the button, but Cameron, who committed a felony herself, I guess you could say, is not arrested because Boz knows the rules, Kevin. Snitches get stitches. It doesn't matter where you go, whether it's the 80s or earlier or after, that that rule always holds true. 
uh, that is absolutely the case. So this leads to a really important meeting in the garage with Cameron, Joe, and Gordon. Uh, Cameron admits to them that she is the one who who perpetrated the hack, and Gordon tells Cameron about what Joe did in episode four, and it's this huge confrontation. And Joe even says that he created both Gordon and Cameron, and this leads to Joe to her punching Joe right in the face, which is I, I really want that gif. I don't know if if it exists, but that's what I want. Probably a really cathartic moment for most viewers, I would say. I, I would definitely agree. And for for a show that is, again, not not the kind of prestige drama like a Sopranos or something, a surprising amount of felonies and violence because we get Gordon sneaking back into the office and taking the giant with him so that they are able to go to Vegas and still present at the conference. And it's uh, it's a pretty great moment because Gordon just the idea of Gordon Clark being the type of person who would go into an office, break in and sneak out with all kinds of stuff. It's uh, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, but it, it's it's nice that he gets to, to be the one to do it. Let's get to episode nine, because I, Kevin is episode nine your favorite of the season, because it is certainly. Yeah, I would say so. Maybe maybe tied with 10, but I really think the ending of nine is so strong that I think it has to be nine. Uh, so we get a road trip. Uh, that's the talking heads that's playing, correct? Yep. Psycho killer by the talking heads is the song on the car. Look at me making music references again, Kevin Ford still weirds me out. Uh, so I love this monologue. So Mo- Joe gives this monologue and talking about the Scottish and I don't know whether like it feels it borders on self parody, just the way that he delivers this monologue and the reaction by the other three characters. Yeah. It's just like, what are you talking about? All of them. It's just like, Joe's just like talking to talk and they all just don't know what to make of it. And uh, I love how they basically, they they get to Vegas even before the credits roll. So we're not going to get any fun road trip stories. They are just immediately, this is just a, a, so much happens in this episode. It's it's truly remarkable. Uh, so, you know, we start off with the with the corporate card being declined and their suite being given away. So they have to kind of jerry rig their way into getting a brand new suite for themselves. And they kind of all work together. Like that's the thing about this episode, especially in the first half, is the four of them are actually working together trying to make this thing happen. And it's remarkable that Gordon and Joe, who very clearly there's a lot of tension, but they're the ones that kind of propagate these these poor unsuspecting bearded brothers into giving them their sweet and their 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 shrimp. It's a uh, it's kind of funny, but also sad at the same time. <laughs> it is it is very funny. Um, yeah, and I think that goes to show like th- their strengths, and you see this through the whole episode, is that the four of them putting their heads together to make this work, to make the giant work. Uh, to make being at this convention work, it, it takes all of their manpower, it takes all their individual expertise characters like like Gordon had to know that about that company to be able to go in there with Joe and con- and talk them out of uh, their suite. Uh, and it took the, their quick thinking and uh, Donna having the knowledge about the booth babes and all these other things to to just get everything to work together. Uh, and then again, the the savvy that Joe has to buy them extra time to not present until the next day, all of that has to come together and everybody has to have their own individual ideas to work together to make it the best case scenario for everybody. Uh, if only they could do that with the product itself. And then there is a 
we get a montage of Joe and Cameron working in their separate spaces and kind of doing their thing. I really like that. Uh, the party scene is just fantastic with the different interactions. And this is this might be my favorite Joe speech of all time because he teases the crowd with turning the computer on, but then he ultimately like he he gets the he points them in a new direction by teasing bring in the porn stars since there is a porn convention next door of some sort. And I love the idea that these two, uh, the, the, this dichotomy of having this very corporate computer event with a lot of nerds, and then you have that indifferentiation to, oh, there's just a porn, there's just a porn convention happening next door. We get Cameron uh, flirting with one of the gentlemen uh, who is working for another company, and he encourages her to move to California. And Joe seems a little bit concerned. Donna and Gordon are talking dirty on the giant computer, thus proving once again that immediately when you get a computer or technological device, it will immediately be used for sexual or pornographic purposes. Yeah, of course, of course, it's going to turn pornographic. I mean, I, you part of it has to imagine that it's in the air with the uh, the, the porn stars there, uh, and to the engineers, it's. It it makes all the sense in the world. They're in Vegas and they don't want to hear about a computer. They just want to see the good 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 girls come into their room. Um, and I think we you talk about Karen flirting with a guy who encouraged her to move to California. I think a big part of that is like this guy is like the anti Joe. He's completely authentic. He's very kind, nice, and he's very. I mean, yes, he's probably flirting a little bit, but he's really telling her, you know, yeah, you should. Yes, Dallas can get you this far, but. California is where all the action is. And I think that, again, like I was saying before, I don't know if she would give that thought as much validity as she would if that conversation didn't happen with uh, with Simon in episode seven. Because if she realizes, if, if her relationship with Joe is only going to go so far, what's keeping her there in Texas is the work. And if the work can go further in California – well, then maybe it, it would be wisest for her to move there. So it's something for her to think about. And I think what happens in episode 10 really helps her to decide to move on. For sure. So Donna and Gordon seem to be in a very uh, good place until they get to the show floor. And all of a sudden, there's a new creation, the Slingshot. Very clearly a ripoff of the giant that is being perpetrated by Donna's former boss, Hunt. And the nosy next-door neighbor. Donna is horrified by what she sees. Gordon makes some connections in his head that are very logical. There's a huge argument between the two of them as they as their, their marriage is very much on the rocks at this point. And Joe walks into this situation and he calls the slingshot a station wagon, which alludes to an earlier comment that was made about what you are, what you showcase on a car show floor. Basically, the idea is that station wagon is very uh, practical, but from a creative standpoint, it doesn't really have a soul. And that is exactly the conversation that Hunt and Joe then have, uh, because Joe tells Hunt that he'll never ultimately create anything. And in a in a very desperate move. Gordon takes out Cameron's OS and makes the machine very unspecial. And this is a moment where Cameron decides that it'll be revealed the next episode, but she will have to extricate herself and do something completely different. And then Joe pitches the, the giant 
and gets uh, purchase orders on them. And Gordon also helps and gives proper credit to his wife, Donna, for the work that she did. Right. So I it was this episode I was talking about. So like you said, is the, uh, what I was talking about going to California and the work here is what's keeping her. Well, then they rip all of her guts out of the system. And now it's not even hers anymore. No matter how much Joe tries to convince her, it's still hers and he needs her to be part of it. She she sees it is what it is. They're putting business above her creativity. And it's like, all right, I got to go. I can't be involved with these people anymore professionally or gosh, probably even personally to some respects, because it everything that was hers about it is now not, no longer there. And yeah, they're able to sell it at the end, but you see Joe's way of selling it is makes it so impersonal, just like it's a workhorse, it's your employee. If you want a friend, go get a dog. You know, all, all these things. And uh, who knows, they could make a little ketchup smudge mean so much when he sees that on the on the paper there. And yeah, it's it, it's a success professionally for them to sell these computers but that champagne pop at the end could is probably the saddest champagne pop i've ever seen in a television show yeah because it's very clearly supposed to denote celebration but there really isn't a whole lot to celebrate like yes they've been able to sell the giant but they have not been able to sell the version of the giant that they want and it may have ruined multiple relationships like both of the romantic relationships are on the line at this point and as we go into episode 10, we really don't see Cameron interact uh, with either of the other characters, at least in the first few minutes, uh, because we know that, Ke- that that Cameron is preparing to move on, and she even has a lot of the programmers and coders working on something else for her, and this will lead to them leaving Cardiff Electric to go on and do their own thing, which kind of leads into the conversation uh, about their 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 gaming community, which is mutiny, uh, which we'll get to in a few minutes. But uh, there there's some other important things. Uh, we don't we don't see Debbie a lot. Debbie is one of the secretaries, but Gordon gives Debbie a giant, and it's this very sweet moment. But then it gets ruined and undermined by the fact that Debbie's the version, the one that they gave Debbie doesn't work and is a lemon. Yeah, that that says a lot about uh, about poor Debbie, unfortunately. Um, but we're we're missing the end of episode nine is a pretty significant moment for Joe. Okay. Tell, tell me about it. What do you like about it? Well, so he goes and sees an, uh, an Apple Macintosh presentation, uh, in another suite. And this computer is very similar to the one Cameron had is it has a soul. It talks to you, but it actually talks. It's not just you putting in your name or whatever. And it coming back to you with text. It speaks to you. And this really opened Joe's eyes to like, I messed up. So I guess you could say the computer spoke to him literally and metaphorically. <laughs> yes. Yes, it did. And he realizes like he screwed up uh, and maybe there is, there is something to having a computer with a soul to it. And then in the next episode, we see that Joe is showing Gordon the very famous Apple Macintosh ad. I love the fact that AMC has had two shows where advertisements play an important role. Of course, the ending of Mad Men, spoiler alert, ends with a Coca-Cola commercial. And in this one, they're talking about the famous Apple Macintosh ad. I love the wink and nod that they give to the fact that Mackenzie Davis, who of course is Cameron, looks like the girl who was in the ad. Because if you watch the ad, it is absolutely the case that the, that she looks very similar. And, and what I like about this is that like you start to see Gordon and Joe 
where they were in the beginning of season one is almost flipped here because Joe is touched by this ad and Gordon like doesn't care at all. He's like, he's like a robot watching this commercial. It means, means nothing to him. Uh, he's more focused on the business and the selling of the computers world. Joe's a little bit more personal touch to it now. And that gets cemented at the end of the episode, but they're really hammering it home here. Yeah. I, I love the direction that they take Joe and the fact that he has kind of done this 180 and he even goes in this very kind of, I guess desperate is the best way I would describe it. Like he is desperate to be with Cameron and to do something to work with Cameron, like almost like a flight, like a, like there's a light that's there that isn't when she's not around. And it's a pretty dark confrontation because Cameron says the Joe is a footnote and that he is not the future. I mean, for, for a show that I think is, is what more watchable and not as cruel like there are some pretty vicious words that Cameron uses here and it leads to Joe making this decision uh, to, to burn <laughs> literally burn down the first uh, giant units that are supposed to go out. Like this triumphant moment is literally being undermined by, by Joe's behavior. And it's so fascinating to me that that's the, that's the direction that they go into because while Joe is kind of having a, a crisis Cameron is building her own thing and is going to be starting this new gaming company called Mutiny with uh, the programmers. And she even offers Donna a job of which Donna turns down at first. But I think we get, I I think the car, so there is also uh, Gordon because they have money. He has bought himself uh, a brand new fancy car. And I think it leads to one of the clunkier scenes in the entire run of the series where they are, they are, they are mugged and the car is stolen. And Kevin, I don't know about you, but even watching this a second time, I just, that scene has never, it just feels like it's out of a different show. It sucked. Like it was, it was a hat on a hat. Like, I think they were trying to prove their point about the nature of like shallowness and lonely at the top and things like this. Uh, that comes with this. And like, it didn't make any sense to me. It felt so unnecessary. Like it almost felt like the writers or whoever was not confident in what they were presenting as the finale. And so they wanted to add something with a little more panache. And I, I think it landed like it, it just was a, a thunk. It didn't land at all. Weird part of this episode, weird part of the season really kind of took me out of the moments here that they were re- the points they were trying to drive home. Like, you know, we've heard about, Joe kind of scorching earth before coming another going, leaving and going elsewhere. And you got to see that in action literally here with him burning the computers. You had these conversations, Cameron starting her own business, the, the harsh words that Cameron gives to Joe, all these things were so strong. And then to have the scene was just so bizarre. Like did everything else was so great. And they did this and it just kind of, it took me out of the moment to be honest with you. I even kind of forgot about it, which might've been my brain doing me a favor, but just this alone makes episode nine stronger than 10. No, for sure. Yeah. Because I, I, I like most of what they did otherwise. Like there's a great moment with Gordon giving Donna that ring. And it's a very sweet moment. This happens just before the accident, but then it's clear that an unspecified amount of time has passed and the accident, like the only residual from the accident is that Donna has a cast that is all marked up. 
Like, that's literally the only thing. There are no signs of PTSD at this point. There's nothing else going on. Like, the only – the decision that Donna makes is instead of going to help run Cardiff Electra, she is going to do her own thing and kind of be a hardware manager uh, for what Cameron is doing with Mutiny. Right. So that's great. I love that Donna makes her own decision to not go to to Cardiff Electric. I feel like I said GE a lot. I meant Cardiff Electric this episode, by the way. Um, and then you have, so Joe leaves to go on his own. Cameron leaves to start mutiny and Donna declines Gordon's offer to join the company and instead go to join mutiny. And so now he has nobody. He doesn't even have the engineers he worked with. Uh, and Bosworth is still in prison. And so now it's just him and a bunch of people. He doesn't really have a personal connection with sitting at this table at the end. And he's kind of wondering what's next. And it's like the perfect encapsulation of like how low, like, you know, the old saying it's lonely at the top. But also I think Gordon has in a lot of ways become Joe. And I think in the beginning, Gordon kind of saw where Joe was as maybe the point of happiness. And now he's there and he's not happy at all. And I think that's a, a really great lesson for people to learn. It goes to show that, Goal, like it's always good to have a goal, and now this goal is achieved. It's kind of like what's next. It leaves you with this emptiness, and maybe it is better to do things with friends and people you care about than just being successful on your own. It's a, it's a very, it, you feel optimism for mutiny. So Cameron and Donna, you feel kind of some, uh, some optimism for Joe and whatever he's going to pursue next. And Gordon, you don't necessarily feel that optimism for him. Like he, you, you think like maybe achieving this is going to solve so many of his problems and it doesn't, I think it's a pitfall. A lot of people fall into. And I thought that was a really great message to end the season with. I think it's really gutsy that they basically have turned Cameron and Donna into the leads of the show. Like at the end of the season that you like, that's what the second season is going to focus on. I don't think that's a spoiler because it's very obvious to me that that's, that is the seed that they are planting and that Joe and Gordon are going to be doing whatever they're doing, but they may not be as much of the focal point like they were in this season. And I think that takes a lot of guts. It takes a lot of guts to basically change the leads of your shows in at the end of a season going into another one. Very gutsy, but also like they did such a great job with those characters throughout the season that, I, uh, it's, I'm interested in all of them, but I'm really interested to see what, what's going to become of them going forward. So great job to them for, st- again, starting the season, I was like, all these characters feel like cliches, but all of them become so much more than that. They all become so distinct and change so much. And now I, I leave season one, I say, bring on season two. Yeah. And I think it's represented by the fact that, you know, Gordon shaves off his beard and yep. Like we, we are, we know, like they've set up a lot for Donna and Cameron to do. And we know that the scenes that they've had have been fascinating because it's kind of two generations of women, one who's a mother and one who's much younger and maybe is not as interested in having a family life and who prioritizes her own creativity. So that those are things to be looking forward to in season two, which we will come back and discuss next month. And Kevin, I know that you are excited for season two. You are also going to get to host next month as well. Hooray. And I'm so glad you mentioned the the dichotomy between where Cameron and Donna are in her life. And I think that's such a great message to send. Like Donna may be a mother of two 
she may have had this career path, but it's never too late to change and and chase your dreams or really uh, take a risk. And I love that she does that because, again, she comes to mutiny and it's a no pay situation. And I love that. I love that they're to, that the message here is, you know, don't be afraid to, to go for the riskier options. Don't be afraid to pursue something that you believe in. You know, Cardiff might be the the safer choice, so to speak, or it may be the choice that would make her husband happier. And she says, nah, forget that. I'm going to do this instead. I'm going to go with my gut. I love that message about the show. For sure. So uh, this has gone about two hours, which is pretty typical for when you're discussing an entire season of television. Sure, sure. We we probably could have gone even more to talk about, you know, episode nine in some depth, but I think we hit on all of the major points and I think that season one, ultimately, it is not as good as future seasons are going to be. But I think when you have the perspective of those future seasons, I think it does make season one feel a lot better. There are some clunky moments. I think there are some things that flat out do not work. But the fact that they nailed the casting and the fact that they ended the season where they did should give you, Kevin Ford, a lot of hope in where they are going because it's going to be very exciting to see the dichotomy that exists with this startup company. Yeah, and I think also we needed to take this episode to talk about kind of the the history of – how it came about its its beginnings and the cast and all that stuff. So hopefully in other seasons, unless there's gigantic cast changes, we can try to just get to it with the plot and go from there. So we'll see when we come back in March with season two uh, of Halt and Catch Fire. So yes, in March, season two in eight, Kevin is going to take the wheel for the next two episodes uh, because I want to handle hosting duties for season four, which is the final season. Yeah, I think that makes sense. All right, so for Kevin Ford, my name is Jerome Cusan. Thank you again for listening to the first episode of There Is Always Another Podcast. We will talk to you again next month. You know, Jerome, I can only hope one day that you yourself will halt and catch fire.